Well, hello, thrill-seekers, fun-finders, or if you're joining me from certain corners of the internet, joy-suckers! Welcome to the third instalment of Toby Haydoke's Who's Round. I am Toby Haydoke, actor, writer, comedian, and not quite good enough at any of them to uh, stop me from being not busy enough to uh, spend time having an anus geekiribilis. My mission this year is to get first-hand testimony from every single Doctor Who story by the time the 50th anniversary year is done. Now, the real work begins here, because my pleas went out into cyberspace and were answered by a gentleman offering to put me in touch with someone who worked in the very early years of the show, a writer, no less. Yet he's also appeared in front of the camera under different circumstances, and with a very different doctor. This was to be the first time I would be interviewing someone without the benefit of, of us knowing each other beforehand, or being introduced by a friend. And the reason this preamble has jumped a time track and is being recorded after the interview itself is because when I went online to test my equipment, my victim noticed and thought that, oh, it was time for our chat, and so got in touch and we started talking an hour earlier than I'd planned. In at the deep end, then, and so appropriately, in my pyjamas. I hope I didn't make an exhibition of myself. Can you tell who it is yet? And uh, it's the first one I'm recording on Skype, so do insert a disclaimer here about sound quality, etc, etc. We're recording. And so um, this is the first Toby Haydoke's Who's Round that has been done via Skype. So I hope the technical quality is good, especially as I'm not calling the UK, but I'm speaking to a most illustrious figure from Doctor Who's history. Hello, would you mind introducing yourself and saying why I'm talking to you about Doctor Who? <laughs> well, to introduce myself, my name is Glyn Jones. These days I use a full name of Glyn Idris Jones because there are so many Glyn Joneses. Uh, as an actor, of course, nobody else can use my name, but as a writer, uh, I, need, I, I need to differentiate myself from all the other Glyn Joneses. When I wrote Doctor Who in the Space Museum, that's a long time ago, uh, I was just billed as Glyn Jones, and, and all my television work uh, actually is just Glyn Jones. Uh, I am now 82 years old, and I'm still writing. Uh, I have written two plays and two opera librettis this year, but most of my output now is in in, uh, in books. Well, your journey to Doctor Who started uh, in South Africa, and uh, you moved over to the UK. Now, obviously, you've seen South Africa change a lot since uh, those days. Was your move from South Africa... Initially, was that purely artistic, or...? Yeah. <clears throat> yes, it was. Um, I wanted to be an actor. I did get a, my first professional job with the, what was then the South African National Theatre, but South Africa is not a theatre-conscious country at all. Though, I see that uh, a beautiful new theatre has just been built in Soweto, of all places. Uh, there, there was a, a rep company in Johannesburg, and there was the Brian Brook Company in Cape Town, and there was what was called the National Theatre that ran an English and an Afrikaans company. And I was cast in uh, Volpony by Ben Johnson for a, a, a very long tour, so I saw most of my country that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. 
but when I heard, or I read in the newspaper, that uh, Bud Flanagan's son, Bud Flanagan Jr., uh, and a Rhodesian girl were hitchhiking to England, that was my chance, because uh, growing up in Durban, there was just no, no theatre at all. They did try and start a rep once, but it didn't last very long. The only people who had any artistic output in, in Durban was, was the Jewish community. Uh, <laughs> South Africans have the, what they call the dry place, uh, barbecue, they have golf, they have rugby, they have football, they have swimming. They have no time for theatre. So that is why I, went, I, I needed wanted to get to London. Do you, do you, uh, have you, how, how often have you gone back to South Africa? I went back in 1973, uh, and already the country was changing considerably, uh, for the better, uh, and because uh, petty apartheid then in 1973 was disappearing fast. I mean, when I grew up in a public park, for example, on a bench you'd have Ali and Blanca's whites only, but now the blacks were sitting on the bench and nobody was saying anything, uh, which was a good thing. I, I went to uh, the department store where my mother used to buy my school uniforms, uh, and I mentioned to the girl behind the counter, there's a lot of blacks in here. Oh, boy, did she hit the roof. So what, she said, their money's as good as yours? I said, okay, okay, I'm not complaining. I'm very pleased to see it, that it's just come as a surprise to me who's been out of the country for such a long time. And then I went back uh, ten years ago because my sister, brother-in-law and nephews and nieces and great-nephews and nieces still live near Cape Town. And do you have hope for the future then, for the future of South Africa? Ah, one, one always has hope. One always has hope. There are, there are good people, there are bad people. There is corruption like you wouldn't believe, but then so where, where is that different from any other African country? At least they don't have monster Mugabe to cope with. Uh, I mean, I remember when, when I was leaving school, a, a young Jewish, funnily enough, friend of mine said, we're going to Rhodesia, that's the country of the future. <laughs> I'd like to know if he's still there and what he thinks of it now. And, of course, so then coming over to England, you found yourself as, as uh, an outsider um, initially. Did it, was, did, it, did it take long for you as somebody who wasn't... Uh, an English national to, to, to break into um, theatre and television? The reason why it took me a long time to break in was simply because nobody had ever seen my work. Uh, my, my, the last leg of my trip to England was working as a bath steward on the Braemar Castle. Uh, so I landed with a rucksack with a change of underwear and that was about it. Uh, and, uh, and about five pounds. So I had no photographs, I had no wardrobe, nobody had ever seen my work. And so I took a job with Kemsley Newspapers for two years, during which time I worked as an amateur with a group called the Taverners, and did a couple of plays at uh, London's YMCA, um, just to keep my hand in. And then after the two years, I decided, right, it's back to acting. Of course, it then took me quite a while to get a job, so I... I had, had this wonderful idea that I would work at Joe Lyons Cadbury Hall at night, which would give me my days to see agents and people. Uh, but <laughs> that was a ridiculous uh, idea because I was so tired in the morning, I slept all day until I was ready to go back to work. Uh, and I gave that up, uh, and, um, and I uh, 
He came a doorman at the Leicester Square Theatre. And then, surprise, 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 I got my very, very first job. Uh, a South African uh, agent, John... Uh, uh, ooh, what was his name? I can't remember. Penrose. Thank you, Douglas. John Penrose. Um, you, if, if you've seen the film Kind Hearts and Coronets, he played the, the husband who purportedly committed suicide. Yes. Anyway, he, he gave up being an actor and he became an agent. And uh, I went into his office at just precisely the right moment because timing is everything in this business sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know? It's who you know, where you know, and how you know. Uh, and he sent me to, of all places, New Brighton, to the old Tivoli Theatre, which is a barn, was a barn. It's, it was, it's been pulled down a long time ago. I mean, it held well over a thousand people, and I doubt we played to more than a hundred people a night. But anyway, I did the whole season there, and then I was out of work again uh, as an actor. So I took a job as a barman in a pub called the Rosen Crown in Ilford. And I stayed there, and then I went to another pub closer to town so I could visit agents and people. And John Penrose came up with the goodies again for a second uh, rep season. We're talking about weekly rep now. Uh, at Ventnor on the Isle of Wight. So that summer I was there. But all, all this time I'd started writing. But Doctor Who only came about because Trevor Bannister was in a play of mine called Early One Morning. And he was friends with the then uh, script editor. Dennis Spooner? No, the one before. Oh, David Whittaker. David Whittaker, that's right. And I went to, we went to dinner at at Tres Flat. Uh, And Whittaker and his wife were there. And he said, oh, you were right to write. write, uh, If you come up with a good storyline for Doctor Who, I'll commission it. And that's how it happened. Sheer luck. Sheer luck. I did the second one, which I sent to Spooner and got nowhere. Um, now, well, it's interesting because Spooner is often credited as bringing a little bit of comedy into Doctor Who, and yet I, I was uh, listening to your DVD commentary on the Space Museum, and um, you and and obviously on the evidence of the marvellous Target book, which I'll like to talk about later, um, it's clearly you had comic intent that seems to have been lost in the production. Would that be fair to say? Yes, it would be very fair to say he did. He, he did an awful lot of. of all right, so the script would have overrun, but uh, what he cut was all, all the, uh, the humorous bits. Uh, and then I was very, I mean, uh, we're talking primitive, primitive television now, <laughs> sets that wobbled <laughs> uh, and things like that. I mean, if the Space Museum was done today, it would be a totally different thing. One thing I did regret very much about the writing was the fact that uh, I had no girls. I, I didn't write any parts for girls. The the rebels were all boys. If I, I this wasn't deliberate. But if if I wrote it now, uh, I would I would change that. But yes, Spooner cut, and then the direction was pretty awful. Well, he was one of the older directors, wasn't he, Mervyn Pinfield? So um, oh. you've got a you've got a a fresh young writer and uh, a director very much of the old school, so yeah. maybe a clash of a clash of styles. Was, were you trying to... Obviously, with the Space Museum, you've got the, the, the sort of invading overlords who, uh, who enslave the indigenous population who rebel. Was, were you trying to say anything about, um, uh, you know, c- 
colonialism or, or oppression, or were you simply trying to tell a, a science fiction story? I was just telling a science fiction story. Well, we'll read stuff into it anyway, because it sounds better. LAUGHTER <laughs> And so taking us on to the book where I think the story really takes flight and you have more characters and the characters have their foibles. You've got the second in command who keeps looking at the ceiling and the, and the boss, low boss, who's very bored. It's a terribly funny book. Um, so when you were approached to write that, was that the first you'd sort of heard and thought about Doctor Who for quite some time at that point? Yes, I, I was teaching in America at the time and... Um and I got this call from, uh, from the publishers asking me to submit um, some prose. To see, you know, it's very different writing prose, obviously, from, from writing dialogue and scenes. Uh, so I did, and they commissioned the book. Excellent. And, and, and then, then, unfortunately, they were bought out by Virgin, and Virgin simply weren't interested very much. Uh, kids came up to me in America and wanted to know about it, and the booksellers didn't even know about the book itself. So it wasn't a great success, uh, but that was a publishing thing. Well, I think everyone likes it, because all, all, all us Doctor Who fans have all, have all of the books, and I think it's one that people particularly enjoy, especially because it, it takes the television serial and runs with it and does something different rather than just being you know, a transcription of what you see on screen. So well, yeah. it's, it's a favourite of mine. It's great. That's um, nice. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Um, and as, as an actor and writer, which is also what it says on my CV, um, did you not ever want to be in the Space Museum? I, I have a, a rather um, unpleasant history of everything I've written I've managed to write myself a part in. So I'm surprised you didn't manage to stick your foot under the casting door. No, I didn't. I, d I didn't even think about it. The only time I wrote myself a part was in a, a, a little film for the Children's Film Foundation. You know, the Saturday morning. I remember piece. them well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember which one it was, but I wrote myself a part in that. I thought, oh, bugger this. It's time I did some more acting. Uh, uh, but as far as the Space Museum is concerned, no, no. It never occurred to me. And I've never written myself, or have I? I've never... I've never wanted to particularly play any character that I've written in stage plays, as far as I can remember. Well, you did, though, um, do a bit of acting, uh, and uh, 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 you're in a small but illustrious company of people that have written for Doctor Who and then been in it. So how did the part in the Sontaran experiment come around? Well, that was quite simple, and I really, to this day, don't know the reason why. Uh, but the producers, uh, who was it? I can't remember. Uh, Philip Hitchcock. Philip Hitchcliffe produced and Rodney Bennett directed. That's right. Well, they decided that the spaceman should have a, an accent, and they, they they decided they should have a South African accent for some reason or other. Uh, and as a South African, I got the part. And it was quite a nice part. Uh, we uh, we filmed on Dartmoor in I think it was November, and I have never in my life been so cold. And when I saw the transmission, I thought, God, I'm not as fat as that. I look like a Michelin man. <laughs> and then I remembered I had about eight tracksuits on in order to try and keep warm. But it was fun. It was and, fun. And obviously very technologically different as Space Museum was black and white and all in the studio. And uh, um, Sontaran Experiment was uh, in colour and, and all outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how would you compare your two doctors, Tom Baker and William Hartnell? Well, unfortunately, dear, dear William Hartnell was getting a wee bit beyond it. And if you, 
it doesn't take too much to notice that he's not very good on his lines. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of ha-ha and hum-hum and uh, what am I going to say next sort of feeling about it. Tom Baker was gorgeous. Lovely man. Do you remember that he broke his collarbone on location when you were doing Sontar and Experiment? I don't remember that, actually, funnily enough. I, I know about it, but uh, because we've got the... Uh, We've got the videotape, the DVD of it. <laughs> Douglas, you don't have to stand out there. My aide de camp is standing here because I tend to dry quite a lot. He reminds me of who I'm supposed to be talking about. Oh, well, that's Douglas who facilitated this whole thing by uh, dropping me an email, so we're very grateful to Douglas and due to you, Glyn. Um So... Do you, do you remember much else of uh, the Sontaran experiment? Because you, you, you weren't the only... Were you a bevy of South Africans? Donald Douglas, who was your boss, is not South African, is he? No, he's not. But the, the, the other spaceman... There was Peter Walsh and Peter Rutherford. Peter Rutherford, very, another very nice man, a South African, and he died quite young. He did, yeah. yeah. He was working uh, at the Royal Exchange in Manchester not long before he died. I was quite surprised. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, they were South African. And you got to face um, Kevin Lindsay as the Sontaran, one of Doctor <laughs> Who's more... Uh, t- t- top rank of Doctor Who monsters. Yes, it was, it was a very good mask, actually. Excellent. And so, are you surprised that Doctor Who has, has followed you about? And was there ever a time when it, when it didn't and then it reared its head? Or has it been a constant sort of... More or less constant. Not, not uh, too much, but... Every now and again, I get a fan letter and asking for a photograph, whatever. Still, after all these years. And as as you mentioned earlier on, you're you're still writing. Is is it a, is it a need to, uh, to to still keep producing work? Oh, <laughs> that's a difficult question to answer. I just enjoy it so much, and I, I live in Crete uh, now that I'm too old to grow tomatoes like the Godfather. <laughs> what am I going to do with my time if I don't write? And I started, uh, I started off by writing uh, a comedy thriller about uh, a private eye called Thornton King. And the first book was uh, Dead on Time. And I've now written six of them. Four of them have been published. The fifth is about to go, and I suppose the sixth one will go next year. Uh, and the... I, I'm very pleased with them, and a lot of people enjoy them tremendously because, again, everything I write has got humour in it, and I've gone to town <laughs> with this lot because Thornton is a bit of a klutz, really, and he's got this wonderful sidekick called Holly Day uh, who gets him out of trouble. But I, those I enjoy, and I've written three novels and, of course, my autobiography, and at the moment I am on my second part of my autobiography, which is uh, called Roses in December, the Cretan Years. So, so the first one goes up to, to what point? It goes up to when I came to Crete. Right, so... That's 16 years ago. So that will mention Doctor Who. Uh, yes, it does. Which means that maybe our listeners should buy it. Well, it's called <laughs> Official Umbrella. Everybody who's interested in the other should buy it. Good. Read the, read, the, read the reader's reviews on Amazon and that'll tell you about it. Good, good. It's got, it's got uh, five, five stars all the way. Excellent. And um, I, one, the other thing I, I, I've been reading is, is your blog, and you've stopped blogging, and um, it's a marvellous final entry because... You sort of sum up all that is wrong with the world, but you're not, you, don't, you don't seem angry. You just seem to go, well, 
I've, I've talked about enough. Yes. Um, to be quite honest, I did get a bit tired of it because I seem to be repeating myself quite a lot. There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, I worry uh, about the next generation and the gener- generation after that. I do worry for them, but what can I do? Uh, I mean, recently my, my sister sent me an email showing the most horrific picture of uh, a mass of burnt corpses in Nigeria uh, of Christians who, who were burnt by, burnt by the Islamists. Now, what can I do about that? It, it's a frightening thing, and, and unfortunately it seems to be growing. Well, to stop us ending on that cheery note, as it is Doctor Who's 50th anniversary, first of all, I'd love, love to say thank you so much for getting in touch. We'll carry on talking after we stop recording, but thank you for getting in touch and for being so willing, and it's a great honour to speak to somebody from those halcyon black and white days of uh, Doctor Who but Doctor Who that you started working on near the very beginning is 50 years old this year Glyn and there are lots lots of Doctor Who fans out there listening to what you're going to say so do you have a message for the Doctor Who fans around the world (laughs) that's a hard one isn't it that's a really hard one Uh, as long as they keep enjoying Doctor Who keep watching it what else can one say Brilliant. Glyn Jones, thank you very much for your time. Uh, We'll continue talking, but I'm going to stop the recording now, so then you can say, my real message to Doctor Who fans is to get a life. (laughs) (laughs) Stop. How kind of Glyn, and thanks to him and to Douglas. Uh, unfortunately, as these things never quite fall out the way they should, it's all one take and unedited, you know. Oh, oh, you could tell. Um, I didn't get Glyn to nominate a charity. Uh, well, while I wait for his suggestion to come through by email, then, how about uh, for this one, if you would like to show your appreciation financially, you could nip over to the Psoriasis Association. It's www.psoriasis-association.org.uk. They don't make it very easy, do they? Just type Psoriasis Association into um, into Google. Uh, it's a horrible disease, psoriasis, that affects 2% of the population. I am one of the 2%, and in fact it was uh, an effect of the disease knocking me down and out over Christmas that uh, led me to decide to focus on this all year. Uh, That's the first, eh? The only podcast brought to you by Flaky Skin. Yum, yum. Sorry if you're having your tea. It's psoriasis with a P, by the way, and an S, and a... Oh, never mind. Next time, we're back in the Hartnell era, interviewing a man of villainous aspect. Hopefully his nastiness will not eclipse my good nature. And remember, if you know a Nymon, fancy a fish person, or have the telephone number of Votan, do point them in the direction of www.tobyhadoke.com and uh, this year, Anorect Odyssey. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening. Uh, do join us for the next one. Oh, by us, I mean me. Well, my iPhone is sort of my only friend. Um, happy times and places. Toby. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Seeds of War. It's been hard, the last year especially. Rationing, riots, Delica's a no-go area. You shouldn't have risked it. (laughs) The military were going to be there. What could go wrong? The war was just a disturbance in the outer systems. We thought it'd be over in a few years. 
you keeping the doctor locked up? He's not some common criminal, you know. What would you call a collaborator? Well, be nice knowing you! Ironically, I survived the last years of the war just to get blown up on my own charges! It's too late! The whole thing's coming down! Run, man, run! You're sure, Doctor? Because you know we're already there. Inside your mind. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.